Thank you, Wes. I do love the Sharks, and we won't get into all that, but Owen Nolan grew up near me. Any, doesn't matter. Um, but good morning, Meadowbrook. It, it's good to be with you. Um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and, and share with you this morning. Um, now, before we dive into it, I figure I'd just kind of give you a couple highlights about the strange dude that's standing in front of you right now. Um, I actually grew up in Niagara Falls is where I grew up. Well, technically, I grew up in a small town called Font Hill, but I figured none of you knew where that was, so I'll just say Niagara Falls. That's where I'm from. Uh, I've been on staff at Lake Point for the past 11 years, and uh, me and my wife, Melissa, we've been married for 12 years, and we've actually raised our family here in Leamington. We've got three boys, and unfortunately for her, it appears that boys are the only thing I can make. Um, And so this is my family. And the first thing you're going to notice is we desperately need to take a family photo together. Um, A lot of those photos aren't even that recent. Um, But those are my three boys. The biggest one there is Levi. He's nine years old. The middle troublemaker there is Ezra. He is five years old. And the little guy with the uh, tongue sticking out, that's Arlo. He is one years old. And uh, that is my crew. And now I'm incredibly biased, but I think they're pretty cute, right? Like we're, we're doing okay. Anyways, let's, let's get into it. Um, the gods of the ancient world, they were angry gods. They were cruel. They were self-absorbed. They were malicious, spiteful, petulant, and treacherous. And one of the classic tales from ancient times that have been passed down through the centuries and through the millennia is the story of Troy. Perhaps you've seen the movie with Brad Pitt. Now, as violent as the movie Troy is, it's still a highly glamorized and sanitized and modernized retelling of history. Most of the most brutal details of that actual story are left on the cutting room floor. In the actual story, as is passed down in Greek literature, we read about the vast Greek army sailing across the Mediterranean Sea being led by King Agamemnon. However, about halfway through his journey, they find themselves, his fleet finds themselves dead in the water. No wind means no go. And the question is, why was there no wind? Well, according to Greek historians, it's because Artemis, the, the goddess, um, the Greek goddess, she was angry. Now, in fairness, if you're familiar with the Greek gods, what you'll know is that they are always angry. But in order to uh, restore winds to the sails, Artemis, she demands that King Agamemnon make a horrific sacrifice, his daughter, Ephigenia. And so what's a dad to do? Well, of course, he does the only responsible thing, and he cuts his own daughter's throat in order to return wind to the sails to make things right with the gods. And we're told that the winds immediately start to blow. Now, is that myth or is that history? Is it random weather patterns in a superstitious age, or was it this cruel, malignant goddess at work? It doesn't overly matter. The point is this. If you lived in the ancient world, you lived in fear of the gods. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of someone living in the ancient Near East in 1500 BC. You inhabit a a spiritually charged universe of gods and goddesses, and these divine beings are anything but nice. I mean, read any ancient text from any ancient culture. The gods were mean. They were finicky. And they were ready to lose their temper at the slightest infraction. And so you made sacrifices, naturally, to keep the gods off your back or maybe to kind of get them on your side. And at first it was a bird or a goat, and then it morphed into needing a bull. But eventually they might even ask you for your child, like they did King Agamemnon. Now, what's interesting is around this time in history, around the time that the story of Troy was actually playing out, in another part of the world, we find a man named Moses on a mountain named Sinai. 
And he had just led a group of people known as the Hebrews. He had led them out of slavery in Egypt. And he had been commissioned by a God who, who claimed to be the creator God, the true creator God. And, and this God rescued the Hebrews by sending these ten powerful and miraculous signs to the Egyptians. And, and God leads them across the Red Sea, allowing them to walk on dry ground. And this God led them across the desert, providing food and water for, so they could survive their journey. And this God seems to actually desire a relationship with his people. And so the question is, who is this God? And why is he so different than all the others? This God is nothing like Artemis. He's nothing like Amun-Ra. He's nothing like Marduk. He's nothing like Baal or Asherah. This God is like no other. Well, Meadowbrook, I want to take some time with you this morning to unpack that question, what is God like? Because time and time again, the biblical authors reveal our God to be a God who is like no other. They describe him as a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. Now, we probably don't have time this morning to unpack each and every one of those characteristics. The plan is to tackle a couple of them, um, just to kind of tease you with an appetizer so that maybe you'll invite me back sometime. I don't know. But... (laughs) I think the question, what you'll find is that the questions of who is God and what is he like are perhaps two of the most important questions you may ever ask in your life or set out to answer. And why do I feel that way? It's it's because I would argue that how you answer those questions will ultimately determine how you live your life. Uh, A universal truth that, that you probably already know is we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Put another way, what you think about God actually shapes your destiny in life. If If you think of God as this misogynistic, racist, mad-at-the-world kind of God, well, then your distorted view of reality will shape you into a person who is, wait for it, misogynistic, racist, and mad-at-the-world. I I love saying it this way. Most of the things you do, don't do, value, prioritize, and pursue can be boiled down to what you believe about God. For instance, if you're convinced that God cares most about your happiness rather than your obedience— You will reorient your life around your personal happiness, even if it means disregarding the things that God asks you to do or the things he asks you to avoid. What you think about God matters. And beyond that, who God is has profound implications for who we are as people. Now, here's the problem. Without taking the time to truly learn the character of this God, we usually end up with a God who looks an awful lot like us, don't we? As the saying goes, God created man in his own image, and man... Being a gentleman, return the favor. There's a a human bent in all of us to make God in our own image. The um, theologian Scott McKnight, he's a professor in Chicago. And during one of his classes that he teaches on Jesus every year, at the start of the semester, he provides his students with two surveys. Um, And the first survey is a set of questions that are about the student, you know, things that they like, things that they dislike, what they believe, what they're, you know, passionate about, what they like to do, all that kind of stuff. And then the second survey that they're supposed to fill out is a set of questions, and and it's the same questions, but but this time they're supposed to ask it, they answer it like what Jesus thinks about all this stuff. And here's what's interesting. According to Scott, 90% of the time, the questions on both those surveys are identical. That says something, doesn't it? Now... I thought about handing out the surveys and having you guys complete them, you know, just for a little fun, test it out. Uh, But that would take too long. So instead, I'm going to give you four quick questions here to reflect on. First, does God agree with you on everything? Does God, you don't have to answer out loud, don't worry, we're not going to call you on. Does God hate 
all the people you hate? Does God vote for the person you voted for? And if you're passionate about something, is God also passionate about that thing? Now, there's more questions I could add, but that kind of gives you an idea. And if you, what I would say is this, if you answered yes to most or, you know, at least one of those questions, I have some good news, bad news for you. The bad news is, is that the God you worship may very well be a God of your own design. The good news is, though, is that you are in fact a human being, so congratulations, but it's not too late to kind of learn about God's true character that he reveals to us. You see, the most ancient primal temptation, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, is to decide what God is like for ourselves and whether we should, you know, buy into, live into his vision of human flourishing or whether we should come up with our own vision. And at the core of, of sin is our desire to decide what is good and evil for ourselves to ultimately be God. And, and so instead of operating as image bearers, we morph God into our image, into an image of our own. Which is why the things that you think about when you think about God matters. Is it's, it's why their accuracy matters. Because we all have thoughts. If we went around the room, we all have thoughts and opinions and convictions about God. And the reality is, is that those thoughts and opinions and convictions about God can either be good or bad, right or wrong, brilliant, or, if we're being honest, sometimes even dangerous. Now, the crazy thing is, is that we often, and I'm guilty of this too, so it's not like a, it's me as well, that we, the things we think, you know, we often believe that what we think and we feel about God is an actual a accurate barometer for what he's actually like. Like we read things, I don't know, maybe you've done this, we read things in the Bible sometimes and we, and that don't align with how we picture God should act or what God should do, and we're just like, hey, you can't do that, God, right? We get frustrated, but friends, as created beings, we don't get to fit God into the box that he, we say he should go into. Our task is to go to the source and discover who he says he is and, and trust in what he says he's like. And here's the amazing thing. What he says he's like, he proves to us over and over again. And so, what does God say he's like? Well, in the first line of Genesis, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we see is that before there was time and space, before there was Adam and Eve, before there was internet and Instagram, there was a God who was. However, at this point in the story, this mysterious creator of everything doesn't have a name. Later in Genesis, the, the creator comes to a man named Abram, and he calls him to abandon the worship of his Mesopotamian gods and, and to go to a new land. He says, pack up your things, pack up the U-Haul, head south on the 401, and he's got no clue where he's going. And it just required this gigantic leap of faith. And yet Abram goes, and he becomes Abraham. And Abraham's relationship with the creator God is, is incredible. However, believe it or not, Abraham never learns God's name. When God comes to Abraham, he says, I am God Almighty. In the original language, it's I am El Shaddai. El was the Canaanite word for the king of the gods. And so the creator calls himself El Shaddai, which was his way of saying, I am like El, but I am so much more. In other places, God describes himself as El Elyon, God Most High, or El Olam, God Everlasting. Basically, God is describing himself to, to Abraham in language that would make sense to Abraham. Yet Abraham never learns his name. Now, all this changes when we get to a man named Moses. 
And one of the best known stories in the Bible, the creator God calls to Moses from over the burning bush. And, and God comes to Moses. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, a.k.a. I am the God that your granddads worshipped. And God tells Moses that he sees the injustice. He sees the oppression of Israel, and he's actually ready to do something about it. And he wants Moses to lead these people out of slavery, to which Moses basically responds, you got the wrong guy, right? And Moses needed a little convincing to do what was asked, but eventually Moses comes around because, as you might know, God can be pretty persuasive. <laughs> However, before, leave, before Moses leaves God's presence, Moses wants to know what he should tell the Israelites when they ask about who this God is. And Moses' question is fascinating. In Hebrew, he says, Mashimo, and it's translated, what is his name? But if you were an ancient Israelite reader, a Hebrew reader, and you're reading this, you know, one of your eyebrows would be raised when you read this because Mashimo is very different than the typical way you would have asked someone their name. In the Hebrew, if you were to walk up to a stranger, what you would ask them is actually this. You would ask them, Mashinka, who is your name? That's the more literal translation, but, but that's not what Moses asked. He actually asked Mashimo. And here's what's going on that gets a little bit lost in our English translations. Mashimo, the phrase that Moses asked God, is more like asking someone, what is the meaning of your name? Or what is the significance of your name? Or, or what makes you, you? Moses isn't asking for just a label like Tom, Bob, or Frank. He's asking the creator, God, who are you? What are you like? Tell me about your character. And when Moses asked that question, the creator speaks his name for the first time ever in recorded history. He says his name is Yahweh. I am who I am. In Hebrew, it's Eya Asher Eya. Now, this is significant, and so don't miss this. The Hebrew phrase Eya Asher Eya can be maybe even more accurately translated as whatever I am, I will be. Meaning God is saying that whatever he is like, he will be that way consistently. He's unshifting, he's unchanging, he's reliable 24-7. Whatever his character is, we can trust that his character is like that for all of eternity. It's pretty cool. Now, back to Moses' question, Mashimo, what is the meaning of your name? If, if you're familiar with the interaction, you know that God doesn't really answer that question, does he? Moses gets the name Yahweh, I am who I, what I am, but, but he doesn't get the, the meaning or the significance of God's name until later of the, in the story. It's, it's not until Moses is on top of Mount Sinai that we get the, the full, complete answer to that question. And then in the, in the terrifying cloud that was God's glory, we see that God proclaimed his name as Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness, meaning he's the God who is compassionate, and he is compassionate all the time. He's the God who is gracious, and he's gracious all the time. He's the God who is slow to anger, and he is slow to anger all the time. He's the God who is overflowing with loyal love, and he is always overflowing with loyal love. He's the God who is faithful, and he is faithful all the time. That is who he is. And did you know that Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 are the most quoted and reused verses in the Hebrew Bible? It's clear that this description of God is, is core to the biblical understanding of, of who he is. And when we read those verses, the first thing we learn about the, the character of God, the first words that God uses to describe himself are compassionate 
and gracious. Now, in the Hebrew writings, order matters. You know, order is, is a clue to, to what is most important. And the fact that compassion, compassion and gracious are at the top of the list of Yahweh's character traits means that they're actually the dominant ones. It means it's the most important things there are to know about him. And the phrase compassionate and gracious is rehum vihanun in Hebrew. And just so you know, if I just impressed you with that, you're getting a Hebrew reading class, not a pronunciation class, okay? I have no <laughs> idea if that was accurate, but... Anyways, rehum vihanun is what's known as a word pairing in the Hebrew language, meaning that not only do these two words rhyme, they kind of sound alike, um, but they're actually placed side by side to, to help explain one another. And so let's kind of break it down here. Um, rehum means, translates, we translate it as compassionate. It's often translated even as the word merciful, and it comes from the root word meaning womb. And the idea is the, the feeling a mother has towards her infant child. When you, when you read the word, it's supposed to conjure up images of, of a vulnerable infant under the tender care of its mother. And this word, or a close variant of it, is used 99 times in the scriptures. 80% of the time it's used referring to, to God. About 20% of the time it's used referring to human beings. Now, in the book of Kings, which you can find in, in the Old Testament, there's this quirky story about two women fighting over a child. And both of them claim that they're the mother, um, but in the ancient world, there's no DNA test. There's no Jerry Springer show for them to go to to settle it. And so King Solomon, he comes up with this ingenious plan, you know, cut the baby in half and give it to both mothers. Like, that's the only fair way to do it. I get it. But don't worry, the baby wasn't actually going to be cut in half. The goal was to flush out who the real mother was. And so upon sharing this great idea, we read immediately that the true mother was deeply moved, Rahum out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the baby. Don't kill him. Rahum is this intense, visceral, motherly love for a child. I, I watch my wife, Melissa, with our three boys. If, if she hears a single cry in the middle of the night, she is wide awake and she is by their side. I mean, I usually wake up too, but only after I experience a sharp pain in my left shoulder. It's weird. <laughs> but Melissa's a mom. She's compassionate. Or at least compassionate to her kids. Less so to me. But she's attuned to their needs. She has her heart is set on and for our boys. And so for all the moms in this room, know that your compassion for your child is actually a reflection of God's character. It's a glimpse of how God feels about us. It's this beautiful picture offered to us of our creator. And you are a living representation of God's heart for us. And so we honor you and we thank you for that. Those of you who are parents, you know that the love of a mother is, 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 is fierce, right? The love a mother has for her child, the, the love of a man for a woman, the love of a soldier for his country, the love of Leaf fans for their team. Like, <laughs> none of it comes even close to the love of a mom for their kids. It's this emotive, visceral, core of your being kind of love. And we're told that's how God feels about you. Let that sink in. What we see is that the word rehum, which we translate as compassion, is a feeling word. In contrast, the word hanun, which we translate as gracious, is an action word. It means to show grace. It means to show favor. It's, it's something you do. It has this deep idea of help. To hanun somebody is to actually help them out in a time of, of need. A, a mother doesn't just feel strong emotions towards her children. When they cry out, she responds. There is action to it. 
And so when God says he's compassionate, it's a feeling word. He is like a mother and we're like his children. And when God says he's gracious, it's, it's an action word. It means like, like a good parent, he'll actually come to your rescue when you are in need. And these words, they, they come together, they link up and they fuse together to form the most dominant character trait God wants us to know him by, compassion and grace. And so friends, here, here's what you need to know. When, when you come before God, whether that be in morning devotions or, or in worship on a Sunday morning or as you're out for a walk at Point Pelee or in the middle of a crisis at work, you come before a God who feels, who cares about you. And you come before a God who acts, who wants to help, who actually wants to do something about your situation. Isn't that amazing? No other God in the ancient world is described that way. And so with those truths in mind, I want you to know that there are three ways that we can approach God. Two wrong ways and, and one right way. First, we can approach him based on what we've done. And if that's you, your prayer sounds something like this, like, God, I'm a go good person. I, I go to church. I, I even go to Meadowbrook and not Lake Point. Like, come on. Like, I volunteer. I, I give money away. And so would you do this for me? And it's a math formula. The implicit idea behind it is that God owes you because of what you've done on his behalf. Which, spoiler alert, he doesn't. The second way that, that you, we, can, we approach God is based on what's been done to us, a.k.a. our circumstances. Maybe you're in a tough spot, life's not going well, you need help, and so your prayer sounds something like this. It's like, God, you know, things are really hard right now. Um, you know, why, why did you let this happen to me, God? It's, it's not fair, and so would you do blank, whatever that is. And we play the victim card, trying to show God how badly we need his mercy, trying to manipulate God in order to get what we want. And, and I think there's a time and a place to, to pray like that, to lament, to, to protest all the things that seem to be wrong in your life. I mean, read the book of Psalms, right? It happens. But I think there's a better way forward, a, a third way to come before God, not based on what you've done or, or based on what's been done to you, but based on whom God says he is. In this posture, prayer sounds something like this. God, you're compassionate. You care about me and you're gracious, you help. And God, you don't owe me a thing. And there's a lot of people in this world that have it a lot worse off than I do. But based on your mercy, on your character, I ask for you to blank. Now, keep in mind, prayer isn't a formula. There's no right way to pray. But this prayer better reflects the heart posture we're meant to have as we come before our Creator we ask him to live out of the character he's revealed himself to have time and time again. And what I can promise you is that God's character of compassion and grace is consistent. The Bible is full of stories about it, and I'm sure this church is full of stories about it. Now, here's the thing about God's compassion and grace. is It's consistent even when we don't want it to be. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is a story about a prophet named Jonah. And in the opening line of Jonah's autobiography, we read that the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, what you need to know about Nineveh is it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria was the dominant empire of Jonah's day. They were the arch enemy of Israel. And they had been at war with the Hebrews on and off for centuries. And the Ninevites were nuts. 
Like, I'm a, I'm a pretty big, like, history guy. I love to read and, and, and explore all that stuff. So just allow me to, like, nerd out with you for a few minutes, okay? <laughs> Did you know a few decades ago, archaeologists found this ancient Ninevite library, and what they discovered was that their writings were crazy. Like, I, I'm talking, like, unbelievably grotesque. For instance, one of the Ninevite kings, they found writings that he claimed to have built a pyramid of human heads in front of his city. Another king talks about how he skinned one of his enemies alive and, and, and put him, like, flayed him out on the city walls. And this last one, maybe earmuffs if you're squeamish. Um, another king, he, he wrote about after conquering the king of another nation, he pierced his chin through the jaw so he could put a rope through it, and he basically kept him in a kennel like a dog until he was no longer. Like, these were not nice people, is the boy, all right? And so if you're Jonah and, and you know, Nineveh isn't a place you're looking to plant a church, and which is why Jonah takes off to Tarshish. Nineveh was to the east, Tarshish was to the west, and Jonah tries to run in the exact opposite direction. But here's something interesting to take note of. As terrifying as the Assyrians were, Jonah is not running from Nineveh. We're told that he's running from Yahweh. Why? Well, we actually find out at the end of the story. We'll get there. But first, we see that Jonah has this run-in with a storm and a fish, and Eventually, he ends up on the shores of Nineveh, and he goes around the city preaching this one-sentence message. He says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. No three-point sermon, no cute story about his kids, no altar call. One sentence, repent, or you're in big trouble. Shockingly, the sermon works, and then Ninevites, they repent. They turn away from their worship of other gods. They, they turn away from their violence, and they turn towards the worship of Yahweh, the creator. Even the king himself repents. He calls for a day of mourning, and he, he puts on sackcloth, and, and he begs for Yahweh's mercy. And so what does God do? He shows them mercy. And this is the part of the story where any good children's Bible ends the story. However, if you keep reading, it's where the story gets most interesting. You would think Jonah would be thrilled with this result, right? I mean, he had front row seats to, to one of the greatest moves of God in human history. But instead, we read that he throws a temper tantrum. tantrum. He, he vents to Yahweh. He says, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Jonah's worst fears have come to pass. And then in total frustration, and you're not going to believe this, he actually quotes Exodus 34, back to God. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, Yahweh, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. How amazing is that? Jonah is mad. He's seething with anger at Yahweh. Why? Because Yahweh was true to his character. Yahweh was compassionate and gracious to his enemies, and Jonah's like, I knew you would be. And here's the point of the story and, and why I share it with you this morning. We all love it when God is compassionate and gracious to, to us, to our friends, to our family. But what about when he's merciful to your enemies? What about when, the, when God shows mercy to people who hurt us, who stomp on us, who gossip behind our back, who lie about us to the boss, who betray us, who divorce us, who abandon us. Why don't you show mercy to them? And that's the thing about this God, Yahweh. He blesses those who don't even deserve it. He goes around showing compassion and grace to all sorts of unsavory characters, including you and me. He goes around showing compassion and grace to people who aren't religious or, or spiritual or aren't even remotely moral. 
He's compassionate and gracious to everybody because it is who he is. And we see this continued and we see this demonstrated in the teachings of Jesus. One of Jesus' most unpopular and most controversial teachings was on nonviolence and enemy love. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, we read that you, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's one thing to not, like, kill your enemy, but to, but to love them. And this language of mercy, which, remember, is another way to translate the compassion and grace, is it, this language of mercy is used all throughout the Gospels. And I think it makes a lot of sense because Jesus is the compassionate and gracious God walking around as the rabbi from Nazareth. In Luke 17, 10 men, they come to, with leprosy, they come to Jesus and they lift up their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In Luke 18, a, a blind man is begging on the side of the road and when Jesus comes within earshot, the man calls, oh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew 17, a little boy is under the control of a demon. He's, he's suffering from epilepsy and self-abuse, and his, his father is desperate for healing and freedom for his son. So he falls on his knees and, says, and he prays, Jesus, Lord, have mercy on my son. And story after story, people come to Jesus. They beg for mercy, and they go away healthy and free. And just so you know, Jesus isn't just heal- he's not just healing people because he's nice. He's not the first century version of Mr. Rogers. Jesus' mercy is born out of his character, which is the same as Yahweh's character. He is compassionate and gracious. The most famous story Jesus ever told was a story about a father and his sons, and and two sons. And and one son is wild. He's this brash kind of party animal, and the other is a a self-righteous snob. And the wild son asks for his inheritance early, which in an ancient honor shame culture is pretty much one of the worst things you can do. It's one of the most greatest acts of dishonor. It's pretty much telling dad to hurry up and die, please. And so in a shocking twist, though, the dad says yes. And the narcissistic son we read set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Meanwhile, the older brother, he stays at home to be a good boy and, and works in the field. And after the one son, he runs out of money, kind of finds himself living in poverty. He finds himself eating pig's food, which isn't a good look for a Jewish kid. It's not exactly kosher. And finally, he comes to his senses. He decides he needs to go home and and beg his dad for mercy. But when he gets close to home, and if this was a movie, imagine it would happen in slow motion with like chariots of fire playing or something, right? Um, We see this, that his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. There's that word again, compassion, right? Now, we usually read the story as if it's about the two sons. But what if it's also, and maybe predominantly, about the father? The message is clear. It doesn't matter what the son did. It doesn't matter how far he had wandered. The father's compassion was consistent. His grace was unchanging. Folks, what I I want you to see is that through this parable, Jesus was affirming God's character. Jesus wants us to know that God is the kind of dad who sees his son on the horizon, his wayward son on the horizon, and goes running out to meet him because he can't wait another minute to wrap him in his arms. I love how Pastor John Mark Comer says it. He says, for Jesus... The primary way we relate to God is not as a puny mortal cowering before an angry, malignant deity in the sky, but as sons and daughters in daddy's lap 
in trust, in vulnerability, and intimacy, in relationship, and love. I'm not sure how familiar you are with all the gods and goddesses of the ancient world, but I can promise you that this description of Yahweh is the description of a God who is unlike any other. I'm going to invite the, the band to come up on, back on stage, but as, we, as I said near the outset, who God is has staggering implications for who we are. What you know about the character of God, what you know about his character will ultimately impact how you live. And there's this deeply Hebrew idea that goes all the way back to Moses on Mount Sinai. In the oldest rabbinic writings on Exodus 34, the the rabbis, they they talk about the imitation of God. They they write about how it's Israel's job to to image God, to copy, copy and emulate and mimic what God is like to the world. Basically, the the way the the world is supposed to know what God is like is by looking at God's people. That's the way they're supposed to know what God's like. And so Exodus 34 isn't just a a ground zero for understanding the the character of God. It's actually also a manifesto for how God's people, you and I, are, are meant to live. God is compassionate, and so we're meant to be compassionate. God is gracious. And so we're meant to be gracious. And so with that in mind, let me ask you two questions this morning, Meadowbrook. Who do you need to start feeling compassion towards? And who do you need to start acting graciously towards? I'm sure there's someone in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your gym, or in this very church that it's time for you to start showing mercy to. For the married folks in this room, Some of the people in your life that you have the greatest opportunity to show compassion and grace to are your spouse and your children. I've learned that that marriage, you know, is the art of learning to forgive over and over and over again. When your spouse screws up, and they will, when they forget to put out the recycling bin on Thursday night or they leave the dirty dishes on top of the dishwasher instead of in the dishwasher, or when they chew too loudly, as my wife lets me know I do, or when they do something else to just annoy you. The question is, do you show mercy? If, you have a, if you're a parent, then every day you actually have a chance to show mercy. I think one of the most important jobs that, that we have, especially as, as parents, is to show our kids, to reveal to our kids the character of Yahweh. And if, if you do a good job of that, if you love them well, It will make it that much easier for them to believe in a God who is compassionate and gracious. Moms and dads or kids workers in this building, you know, I think with school coming up, you know, we send our kids to to school to learn and that. But I think one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is to raise them so that they have as little unlearning to do as possible, especially about God, about our Heavenly Father. And so Meadowbrook, let me ask you one more time. What would it look like for you to reflect God's character of compassion and grace to your spouse, to your children, and to everyone else? Because that is how the world knows the character of our God. Will you pray with me? God, we celebrate that you are a God like no other that you are God whose primary traits are compassion and grace. 
that you feel and that you act towards us. And so God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters right now here at Meadowbrook. Some of them have this view of you as this, maybe they struggle as they think of you as this angry God, this God that, that's not for them, that, that they're just kind of walking on eggshells around you. And so I just pray that those lies would be shattered this morning, that they would know your heart is for them, that you are a loving parent. And God, I just pray for all of us that, that we all have this temptation, myself included, where we come before you and we try to make it about the things we've done. We're like, God, I did all this. Will you do this for me? We try to bargain with God or, or we try to come to God and we're like, God, everything's going wrong. Like, how could you let this happen? You owe me one. But God, I pray that, that this church, that our heart would be to come before you and just, God, we know your character. We know you're a compassionate God. We know you're a gracious God. You don't owe us anything. And people have it worse, but but God, based on your character, we ask you to act. Father, I pray blessing on my friends. pray all of this in your name. Amen. Please stand as we worship.